Hello, listeners, and welcome to Shattering Superstructure, a podcast that breaks through the majority opinion and mainstream culture. I'm your host, Alex Arabian, a journalist who explores the value of art for the sake of art. In these interviews, in which I'll have occasional co-hosts, there will be no scoops, no juicy bits, and no hidden agendas, just a safe space in which one can think as one wishes and say what one thinks. And on that note, let's get to the episode. Thank you for listening. What's up, everyone? So we've got Freddie Prince Jr. coming up on this episode. And we talk about pretty much anything and everything from relationship advice to a retrospective on his career to the evolution of the teen genre from the 70s up until now, uh, the independent film movement, and uh, the availability of content uh, way more than, let's say, the 90s. Um, It's not that the independent film is going away, Although that movement is very much looked at as something that has passed. It's just that these films are harder to find with the vast availability of TV shows and films with so many streamers. Uh, and, and those can get lost without a marketing campaign. Uh, talk about, I know what you did last summer. I still know what you did last summer. Scooby-Doo 1 and 2, his role as Kanan on uh, Star Wars Rebels. And it's just uh, a wide-ranging conversation that I really enjoyed. It's one of my favorite interviews, uh, I think, that I've ever done. And Freddie, uh, as you can imagine is just the kindest uh most genuine person and uh, i always appreciate that in an industry that uh can be described as oftentimes crazy hope you enjoy the episode and thanks for listening How you doing, Freddie? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. So uh, I'm Alex, and uh, this is my podcast, uh, Shattering Superstructure. It's great to meet you, too. I uh, appreciate you uh, joining. Oh, well, thanks, man. I think first off, I, I really enjoyed uh, your last film, Christmas With You, um, <laughs> a feel-good, uplifting film. So, uh, yeah, it struck a chord with me. I appreciate that, man. That's very kind of you to say. I appreciate that a lot. Of course. Um, what initially drew you to the the project? That one was my daughter is definitely she she's she's our kid. <laughs> she <laughs> she she wants to be in the arts. She's a, we allow her dance right now, so she competes heavily in in that. But we want her to be able to be a kid, so she's not going to ever act as a child when she's 18 she can do what she wants but she definitely has an interest in it and so both my wife and i wanted to go back to work to sort of show her 
how we believe you should carry yourself and how we believe you can exist in this business without, you know, losing yourself, right? Because we both were very successful with that. So that was the first part. And then when I got that script, normally, if it's a romantic comedy, I I did so many that I there has to be something different, something unique about it for me to dig it. And I, when I read the script, I realized I've never, I, I was gone from the business for so long. I'd never played a father. And now I have 13 years of experience that I could draw on and, and sort of smush it into this guy, so to speak, and, and see what it looked like. And I, I just never had that opportunity. And so that got me excited. And then lastly, Unless I write it, I don't really get to play Latinos in this industry. And that's always been something that was very important to me based on who my father was. Um, I even had family members that called me like a Puerto Rican instead of a Puerto Rican. And even though it's funny, like, and I, even I say it now, like when I was 12, that sucked. Like I, I hated that. I just wanted to be accepted. And this business if people look up, they'll say, no, that's not true, Freddie. You played this guy and that guy. No, they changed that last name after I booked the role. The original last name was Johnson or Smith. And then I booked it. And then the studios can just go, oh, look, we we hired Freddie. We can look like we're diverse if we change the name to Sandoval or Sanchez or, or whatever they feel like doing. And those don't count. So I don't I don't count any of those. It was Latinos in this business that didn't that didn't respect or didn't feel I had enough Latino in me to, to play these roles. And, and I, I had heard from people that, that had said that they don't know that I heard, but other people that we both knew were like, yo, this guy said this about you. He doesn't think you're a real Latino. And also like, dang, bro, like I haven't even met this guy and he's just talking trash. So when the, when this group, which was all Latinos, all Latinos and Latinas, the director, Gabriela, when they came to me and offered me this role and we all sat and talked, I told them, I said, look, I, I expect dignity, but all I ask for respect wise is an opportunity to earn respect. I don't believe in this. People have confused those two words, I think, because of social media, dignity and respect. One should be given and one should be earned. And when the, when the latter is earned, it works out great. When it's given, you can't name a time where it's worked out well. So so I just thanked them for that opportunity. And by the end of the movie, like we were all on the same page. I, they, they knew that I took it seriously. They knew that I was for real and, and legit. And that sounds weird for people to hear when I say it, but that's legit how this business is. So I was just grateful for it. And I made a wonderful relationship with these people. I'm getting ready to make another movie with Miguel in a, in a few weeks out here in Los Angeles. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for that movie and, and for the opportunity that, that that group gave me. Oh, that's outstanding. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's so great to hear, you know, um, at least it's beginning to, to change. It feels like, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, it, if it does cool, if it doesn't, there's, you know, you can only control your actions right. and your reactions to the actions of others. Right. My godfather used to say that to me all the time. It sounds like I made it up. I didn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm I'm pretty good at that. In my early 20s, I wasn't. But by the time I started hitting my 30s, it, you know, it had been beaten into me since I was a little boy. And 
that really helped me get get through especially this this industry which uh which is crazy you know there's some there's some i'm sure it's not the only one but it there's some crazy people out here man and you gotta you gotta be able to deal with crazy yeah um and you know i i think speaking of 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 that and you know you spoke of how how you and uh sarah you know want to teach your your kid how to you know, properly navigate the, the, the industry. So I guess, you know, personally, I'm, I'm still a bachelor, but I feel like I need this advice. What's the secret to navigating a successful lasting marriage? Uh, and second fold, uh, adding in the layer of this crazy industry, <laughs> you know, relationship advice is a lot like a peanut yeah it's delicious to most but it can kill a few <laughs> so, so you know what i say may not work for you mm -hmm. it may it may click perfectly it, it all depends on on how you're programmed to receive information right because right. we're all such different human beings based on our upbringing if if you knew my godfather the way i knew him like I loved him. He was one of the greatest men I've ever known, but he was crazy as, as cat shit. Like, so, <laughs> so, so, you know, I may respond to different types of, of criticism and discipline in, in a diff much different way than you, but I think any person you're investing energy in mm -hmm. needs to be investing energy back into you. And that's not just in relationships, that's friendships, business partnerships, acquaintances, anything like that. If you're investing time and energy, effort, resources, any of these things, and you're receiving nothing in return when you text, it's three, four, five days, that's not someone who's worthy of your attention, who's worthy of your energy. They're not taking you seriously and they need to be removed from the equation. And that does one of two things, and they both are good. Either they're out of your life and they're not taking your energy anymore. And you can look for somebody who will receive that energy and then bounce it back on you. Or it wakes them up and they go, oh, crap, I got to step my my game up because this isn't the first guy that's walked out of my life. Like all of a sudden they go, yeah, all my friends are doing this. Okay, it's it's a me issue. So sometimes that's what it takes to wake people up. So with Sarah and I, there always has to be a, a level of energy. Now it doesn't have to be 50, 50 all the time, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes that you got other stuff going on, you might've lost your father. And so for three, the three months, you're, you know, a wreck and you can give 10% and that other person steps it up and gives the 90, but you have to get back there eventually because they're going to have some rough times too, whether it be in their, their career or their family, or they lose a friendship or when you have kids, it's a whole new ball game because you worry about them. So as long as there's, as long as you see a concerted effort, then that's a worthwhile person, whether it's a friend or, or a partner. But if you're not stay away, I just see too many of my friends, male and female who just give, give, give to someone who's like, yeah, cool. I will take, take, take. Right. And then they wonder why they don't, they don't find anyone. I'm like, cause you're dating the same person every time. There's only two types of people on earth. There are givers and takers. That's yeah. it. You got to find a giver. And then those types of relationships, man, it just, even on the hard times, you have such a strong foundation 
because you can think back and go, man, this woman's been so damn good to me. I know we're having a tough time now, but there ain't no way that that's getting thrown away because this week has been hard. But if that foundation's not there and you're the only one given, it's real easy to leave. (laughs) So, you know, take that for what it's worth, you know. That that's wonderfully said. You know, I'm starting to think back on like times I've been ghosted and and uh, as the kids call it these days. Yeah, it's like we, you know, we, hey, we've all been there, bro. I've been yeah. ghosted as well. But then I, you know, like you're saying, put in too much energy into that, into trying to you know fix something that's maybe not fixable. You know. Yeah. Uh, you, listen, you can't. It's it's funny. There's not going to be a person on earth that you can change. Right. There are going to be people on earth that you affect, but there's right. never going to be a person that you can change. The only person that you can do that to is yourself, right? As you grow and evolve, or sometimes we regress, right? And go back to our childhood in a, in a terrible moment, you know, whatever it is. But we're the only one that can that can change that, whether we're we're actively doing it or whether we're allowing other people to do it. And that gets back to you're in control of your actions and the reactions to the actions of others. So it always goes back to my sociopath godfather, who I would have lied in court for and got him a hundred <laughs> grand and a fake passport if he ever needed it. But he was still crazy. <laughs> yeah, crazy, but but gave you know good advice. It sounds like yeah. crazy like a fox, they say. Yeah. Um. So for for. For Clerks 3, I actually just recently watched that too for like the third time because like it was, I thought the movie was really cathartic and one of Kevin Smith's, you know, best films. And I, I love that, that, that montage where it's, so, it's so many people auditioning for the movie within the movie. Kevin has, a has earned a lot of love from actors in this, in, from our generation in this industry um everyone has a soft spot for him he's one of the the more generous kinder people in this business um to his own detriment i think he'd even admit to that uh i've known kevin for a long time i wrote something that that he almost uh hosted back in the day that made him chuckle and uh I wasn't able to get in dogma back in the day cuz I was on a different movie and Miramax wouldn't let me do both cuz they were too far apart oh. the locations. So I always felt like I missed out on that. And then Sarah did season 1 of of He-Man and met Kevin on that and Kevin asked if we would be interested in coming in to do a thing on Clerks 3 and I was like finally <laughs> <laughs> The dogma curse has been broken. I was like, I don't care what he wants me to do. Just tell him I'll be there. Cool. And so we went in and he had us do a bunch of stuff, probably like 10 minutes worth of things. And then he just took the little snips that he liked the most and, and threw them in there for us. But he's the best. Everybody loves Kevin. Yeah, it's so great to hear. I, I've asked other people about what it's like to work with them. And, and they said this exact same thing. Everyone from our generation is going to say exactly the same thing because we all we we know him, we know of him, we've been inspired by him. We're not seeing him in retrospect. We were actually in the theaters, so it's just a different it's a different Kevin for us. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, he's one of the <clears throat> the founders, or you know, helped shape the American independent film movement. Movement, in absolutely, like- him and Quentin both, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, speaking of Smith, I feel like he grew up like a lot of us on Star Wars, whether we even liked the films or not. I mean, I personally am a huge fan. So, I mean, I want to talk about, you know, Kanan, the sure. one of my favorite roles uh, that you play. Uh, I think it's an iconic role. Um, so what, what, what was it like um, sort of landing that and, and being able to be in the Star Wars uh, universe? So Disney is like, insanely secretive with it and lucas arts is equally as guilty as far as the insanity part goes so they keep everything so close to the vest that it's like you'd think it was the cia and it's just not at the end of the day right like at the end of the day these are stories everybody knows the stories everybody knows where you're getting the new stories from like it's okay like we can relax a little but no there will be no relaxation <laughs> so to audition for it um they said uh, they want they want you to read for this this animated thing. I still call them cartoons, but people get mad if I say that word. I don't know why. I love cartoons. I'm not saying it with malice. So I said they want me to they want me to audition for their for their cartoon. I was like, I mean, I have to read it, and I'm not going to just go audition for something that I don't like. I said, can I get a script? They're like, there's no script. I go, they want me to audition with no script. He goes, no. I go, all right, well, let me see the sides. And I read the sides and they're horrible. Okay. They're absolutely horrible. It's for a show called the Wolf Pack and they're ripping off Star Wars. It's like a cheap Star Wars is like, Hey, this, this star sword is going to save the day and all this. I'm like, this, this is, this is crap. Like, why am I going to read for this? And my agent says, well, it's Disney. And I think it might be Star Wars. And I go, Oh, I go, did they tell you that? He goes, no, but I don't know why they would send you this because I agree this is horrible. I don't, I just don't think they want any of their stuff getting out. Mm. I go, all right, dude, I'll go read for this thing. So I get in my car, I drive all the way to the valley, which I don't like doing. <laughs> and uh, I have a, like an old car and people almost always hit me on the freeways because it's a smaller car. It's, old two, it's a 1976 280Z. And uh, so I don't like going all the way over there. So I go over the hill. And I see this guy that I've known a while who's been in the voiceover business for a while and it's California. So I see this like cloud of smoke coming out of his car and uh, I go up and I know who it is. I go, Hey buddy, I won't say his name. And he's like, Hey Freddie, how you doing, man? I go, I'm good. And he goes, you're here for star Wars, aren't you? So now I know. Okay. I go, yeah, I guess so. He goes, yeah, man. He goes, you're going to get it. I know you will. I was like, All right, well, thanks man. Like, you want to smoke this? I'm like, nah, man, I'm going to go do the audition. But thank you, bro. <laughs> so I leave, I go into the audition and then I see the artwork. And now I know for sure. Cause it's all like, you know, Twi'leks and this and that, and all these creatures that are from the universe that I've seen in video games or, or, you know, on the covers of books, things like that. And there's new sides. And so I look at the sides and they're a little bit better. Right. <laughs> I go in and uh, there's this big glass wall microphone. And then I see um, the, a guy in a black cowboy hat who I learn is Dave Filoni, right? But I wasn't a big like Star Wars head. So I didn't know like all the people behind the scenes. I go to the movies to watch the movie and I don't stay through all the credits, even though I'm in the industry. I got kids. They ain't trying to, <laughs> they ain't trying to deal with that nonsense. Right. So do it the old way. Get all the credits out in the beginning. And then when the movie's over, the movie's over. So 
we uh i sit there and i look and they're looking at me they go are you ready and i go i just want to make sure we're on the same page here and he goes yeah that's his dave's voice i go this is star wars right and he goes yeah i go all right give me one more second and i see them laugh i can't hear him but i see them laugh behind the glass so i go and i look at this one speech one more time and i'm it's just easy as pie right i go okay he's he's han solo but he's a jedi that's what they want that's what they're looking for and so i go in and i do my best like you know i summon the powers of harrison ford and mark hamill at the same time and let's see what happens and then uh i didn't screw it up and so i know that dave wanted me and then disney did not disney only wants to hire people that are like in their circle of actors because they try to control that pay rate, right? They don't want to pay voice actors a lot of money. So uh, they're like, no, we got this other guy we want. And Dave had asked a few people that I had worked with in the past what I was like. And they were like, yeah, dude, you'll love him work with him. He's like, no, this is my guy. I don't care what you say. That's my guy. This is what I was told. I don't know if that's if that part's true. It's just what I was told. So although I know that Disney didn't want me. So, uh, so I get the role. And then we go in for the first day and I meet the rest of the cast and we're all there at the same time, which very rarely happens. Most of the time you're recording by yourself and you're reacting to someone who's already recorded. You hear it in your ears if you're lucky. Sometimes you just have to guess how they're going to do it and then maybe give three different performances to each line so that it doesn't sound chopped up and weird. They didn't do that on this. We're all there and we shot it in order like an old school radio show, like the shadow like, <laughs> like like so we're all there and before every episode dave would literally do like a 30 to 40 minute breakdown of every single thing that would happen in that script and what it looked like what it sounded like what it tastes like everything super specific and then when he was done he'd just basically say let's go and everyone would go and we basically go through the script and a little bit of stops and starts you know obviously for, for the scenes, but sometimes, you know, within the scene, if we wanted to get a certain line, a certain way. Um, but yeah, it was very organic and, and easy, easy workplace. Um, and Disney was right to want their other guy. Cause I made them give the whole cast a serious raise. Um, not just myself. I take care of my, my fellow actors. And uh, so they hated me for that. And I didn't care cause I had a great experience and I'm still friends with that cast to this day. Oh man. And Disney wanted you back for Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. No, they didn't. I think Dave did. Okay. The, the Lucas Arts people called. And that that to me felt a little strange because I I loved Kanan. I loved that story they told. And to me, that story was over. Hmm. And it was over for all the right reasons. It's not like, oh, and I'm done with it. Ha ha ha. It's not like that. It's just we made grownups cry at a, at a cartoon. Yeah. And that to me is like, that's big time, man. Like that's to me anyway, that's big time. And so I felt like every time you hear my voice after that, it kind of dilutes that experience because it's like, ah, oh, he's still with us. And no, you should feel like he's been taken away from you. That's a good, that's a good thing. People get upset when I say that, but I'm like, I'm not trying to say it in like, ha ha, I made you cry. I'm trying to say it like, hey i'm i made you cry that's that's the goal and the beautiful thing about that last scene is it has nothing to do with me because there's no dialogue right. it's all just music and direction and animation 
but because I had the three and a half seasons to build that character's credibility and we didn't get canceled after season one, like most shows do, but we had time to develop these characters that he didn't have to say a word and people come up and thank me. And I always tell him, I go, yo, I had nothing to do with that scene. (laughs) It had nothing to do with me, but thank you. I'll let the proper authorities know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to hear. Um, So what are some of your personal favorite roles that you've played over, I guess, a nearly 30 year career in the industry, right? uh getting close to that yeah somewhere around there um my favorite's actually a video game character that i played that if you didn't if you haven't heard about dragon age you'll probably never know but i guess people could look it up on youtube but he was a character named the iron bull and he was everything that i'm not Hmm. looks wise personality wise you know, we had, I guess maybe we had a couple similar qualities. We're both loyal, but uh, these video games in the modern era anyway, and for the last 20 years, I, I call that still the modern era. Mm-hmm. They're movies. Yeah. They're movies. I mean, they're trying to make, they've been trying to make a mass effect movie or miniseries forever. They just keep screwing up the development process. I'm sure they'll try to do a Dragon Age one. They got Dungeons and Dragons. It looks like they finally got it right and did it the right, right way. I've only seen the trailer, but it looks great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, that's actually my favorite role of, of, of anything. But as far as live action stuff goes, that's a little bit trickier. It's probably. I don't know any of their names. That's that's funny. Um, what is the guy from? It's no Ray is is I know you did last summer. What was the guy's name from? uh, Oh man, it's called the House of Yes, and his name was Anthony. Okay, and um, this was like my homage to to Tony Perkins from Psycho, because to me he was, and his name was Anthony. The character's name was Anthony. (laughs) To me, he was Norman before the mur- the first murder like yeah. before he was running the motel solo like what was he like then mm-hmm. and i was a young actor and i that was way too brave a choice for me to make and i didn't get where i wanted to be all the time but i feel like actors have to be allowed to take those kind of risks and even fail right cuz there i i remember it's one of the few movies I've seen. I remember watching it and being like, oh, I missed that. Oh, dang it. I missed and being really mad at myself. But that anger motivated me to clean things up and to get better and to try and find new ways to apply life experience because I didn't know how. I was young and green and I didn't know how to execute every idea I had. I had talent, but skill is developed. And I just it was so I was 19 years old. I was just a baby. But I saw Parker Posey take these huge risks and I wanted to do that too because I knew I'd be a better actor at the end of the movie than when it started. And so I know a lot of times with social media, actors don't feel safe to fail or to have regrets on certain jobs. Like regret is a good thing. I know as we get older, we go, no regrets, no regrets, but that's just old people not trying to deal with all the horrible stuff they've experienced in their life or things they've done. 
Uh, But they have regrets. So when people tell you they don't, they just, they're not mean, but they're not telling you the truth. But we have, artists have to have regret because that helps us learn. It helps us go, okay, I don't want to be in that situation again. That's not conducive for success. I don't want to work with this person again. That role escaped me. I have to go back after that kind of a role, but not yet. You know, I regret doing it too soon. Like those, all those things have to be on the table all the time. And in the era of social media, and I'd speak to a lot of young actors and they tell me this, they'll get so much hate for saying, I wish I wouldn't have done role X because role X connected with so many fans. And they're like, how dare you hate the person I love? And it's like, no, no, no. You just have access to this actor, which maybe you shouldn't. And, and you're just expressing, you know, your heartbreak that someone didn't love it as much as you. And in this case, it's the the actor behind the role, but they have to be allowed to feel that way so that they can become better and, and, and make different choices and not just live in the same role all the time. And I get that it's hard for kids that were born into social media to get that, but you still, you have to give artists latitude like that. You just do. And if you don't understand it, then, then you don't understand it, but, that's the best way I can explain it. That yeah, it, it's such a good point too. I mean, in the social media generation, like there is uh, zero barrier. It seems like yeah, yeah, it's tough, man. That that like button really screwed a lot of people up. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, and you know, I think uh, you mentioned Ray um, from yeah, like, man. We like Ray. Year. Yeah, yeah. And I still know. And you, you got to work with Kevin Williamson, who is, I mean, you know, one of the master of slashers. Uh, you know, he's the first four screen movies. Um, I feel like that was maybe like a turning point uh, for you, it seems like, because of just bringing you into like the quote unquote mainstream um what was it like for you working on on those those films without kevin yeah there's no me there's no me and sarah there's no you and i wouldn't be here talking right now kevin is my was my guardian angel man like there's nothing i won't do for i literally have gone in and read for him on shows that i didn't even want to do just because he asked me to (laughs) and 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 had i booked it i would have done as many years as it was on television you know what i mean like but he asked so i was there and i would do anything for that man he he fought for me on i know you did last summer i wasn't everyone's first choice um jeremy sisto who was the superior actor than me at the time um I think I caught up to him eventually, but at the time he was, I definitely know he was better than me. He was the first choice and and rightfully so for a handful of people, but Kevin was just not having it, man. He just wasn't having it. And he really fought for me and he believed in me and I'm, I'm forever grateful to him. You know, the experience on the second one was superior to the first because on the first one, I was dealing with someone who didn't want me in the movie Um, so it made the process difficult on a daily basis. And I was a young actor. It made me not trust the studio process. It made me not trust directors. It made me just distrustful in in general. Um, but it was still a a wonderful experience when the movie came out. Um, the opportunities that it provided were, were amazing. 
the the growth that I had on that on on making sure how I was going to make sure I never felt the way I was made to feel right mm-hmm. and that was a heavy motivation on on my part moving forward um to make sure that I always took care of of my cast to always make sure that they felt good and empowered and even in negotiation processes, I would reach out to their agents and be like, Hey, they got more money in the budget. Make sure you get your guy, you know, the, the max number that he can get. That's something that's always been very important to me. And it was because of some of the bad experiences on, I know you did, but then I got on, I still know. And it was Danny Cannon who is crazy and mad as hell. And I would run through a friggin' brick wall for this guy. And that wall would fall down and crumble. He was so cool and straightforward he's like look look mate i need two more weeks and 10 million dollars more but we're gonna get this thing done and i'm just like dude i'm your guy like i won't leave set i will stay there and when you say action we will freaking go and i wish i would have had more to do with him but i was glad that i had a lot of solo stuff in that because i got a lot of one-on-one time with him and i felt like the crew always felt they could rely on me to get him out on time i felt like my cast always knew that I would always be prepared and ready to work. Um, and I know Danny appreciated that because he needed two more weeks and $10 million more. So I had an absolute blast on, on the second one and, and uh, met my stunt man on the first one for about four years. He did all my stunts until he got super buff and I stayed super little and skinny and scrawny. <laughs> so he couldn't do it anymore. But, uh, but yeah, man, I, I had some wonderful experiences. My son, his name was Troy Robinson. His dad was uh, a really famous stuntman named Dar Robinson, who did that CN Tower static line jump back in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and he died tragically like my father. So we bonded pretty quick in like about 30 minutes <laughs> of knowing each other. We had both kind of shared our, our father stuff. And so we were tight for a good few years there. Oh, that's, that's incredible story. And yeah. His dad, about- his dad was no joke. His dad was no joke. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and he talked about like, okay, that movie caused you to like, want to advocate for uh, actors and, and mm-hmm. getting proper pay. And then, you know, I think fast forward 15 years, what you're talking about with Star Wars Rebels. <laughs> that's right. There you go. That's I, I'm still stuck in my ways. <laughs> yeah and i think you know with like disney marvel dc there's so many of so much of that content and we, we spoke about smith earlier and it's kind of for better or for worse whoever however you look at it, it it's kind of dimin- diminished the presence of the the indie film as it was in the 90s i guess it, it seems like much of that has has disappeared. Um, I don't know if how you feel about that. I I don't know. You know, I think the business is just different. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. And it's the artist's responsibility of every generation to figure out how to tell the best stories you can tell with the newest technology available. Mm-hmm. Now. If you're a student of the game and you simply love film, then I would encourage you to learn about the history of film as well and to shoot on everything from Super 8 to regular stock to pan ahead and then go full digital where you don't even need to check a gate anymore. Um, But that's not necessarily 
necessary. So I think it's just different. The independent film does have a space. It's just on these smaller streaming services. But there are places to find these. I don't know the names of all of them, but they're all named like Tubi and Shudder and and Shiver and and, and all these. And I, I can't keep up with them. But they do find homes. They're just not homes that are as readily readily available to our generation because we like going to a theater. Uh, in California, the, the Lemley chain is our independent theater chain. And you can see every indie film there. Or I can go to Santa Monica and go to the Newark, which is just a single theater. And on Saturdays, they do Rocky Horror Picture. And then they just do like random indie or foreign films during the week. There's another one on, uh, on the West Side as well that I've only been to once, but it's just because I didn't know about it. So our generation likes that, right? And we tend to go with what we know. But I feel like young people are able to find these these hidden gems, gems and, and there is space. Because I know more movies are getting made than, than ever before. There's certainly more movies in production now than there were in the 90s. It's just, damn it, where are they? And, yeah. and you have to just hunt them down and, and find them. And without a marketing campaign, it's difficult. It's it's very difficult. So I would say it's it's not that we're making less. It's just harder to find them. But mm -hmm. the industry's you know it's every ten years it's going to be night and day compared to how it was the previous decade. It, it's always been that way. It will always be that way. Always be that way. Um, and yeah, you know the I would love for it to go back to Charlie Chaplin and United Artists and. And none of these publicly traded studios, but those days are done. They're done. So yeah. you got to find the way to tell the best stories today. Yeah, that's that's a great way to to see it, and uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and you've got speaking of major studios, James Gunn now heading DC, which is amazing. I mean, it's pretty wild. It's a brave move by them. I think maybe that's what they needed to do because they just keep sort of moving pieces around there. Um, I don't know if all the people making those decisions necessarily even like superhero movies. So, so it was good to get someone in there who they know does someone who's been able to pull it off at the, at the highest level more than once, once for them and once for, for a couple of times now for, for Marvel. So I, you know, I don't know James that well. I liked working with James. He was a good guy, but we haven't been in contact and I don't, I don't know how long. Um, but I think that's a move they needed to make. And as long as they empower him, then he can do it. But I know they've had other people there in that position that could have done it and they didn't empower them. So that person failed and then gets fired and blamed for it. And it's like, well, you didn't let person X do any of the things they wanted to do. Right. So that's why you're still in the same boat. So I, I wish them the best. And I, I obviously wish James the best. I even I wish him better. Than I wish yeah. them. But, uh, you know, if, if they don't empower him to be him and to tell his stories, then, you know, they'll they'll find someone else in a couple of years. So hopefully it goes the right way and not the wrong way. It's so true. And and tracking his career evolution, it obviously intersects with yours with with Scooby-Doo one and two. I mean, he wrote those and he's got such a unique and wild style even before the marvel films i just mm -hmm. loved his blend of comedy horror romance slither out. yeah slither was wonderful man yeah so i mean 
what was it like sort of not only reuniting with with Sarah on uh, Scooby-Doo 1 and 2, but also just acting in those films. I feel like the tone was, I'm a huge fan because I, I love the tone. I think they balanced it perfectly um, between like spoof and homage. Um, and plus it was perfect, perfectly cast. So what was your experience like on those? Well, Sarah and I were, had already been dating, so there was no reuniting for us. We were already living together at the time. She was okay. finishing up on uh, on Buffy, so she came out a couple weeks after we were already out there once her season had ended. And uh, But yeah, so it was, you know, James has spoken about this, so people get less upset with me when I speak about it now, but they still get a little bit upset. Um, you know, the original script that James wrote was perfect. It was perfect. It didn't need to be touched, changed. Nobody's fingerprints needed to be on it. It wasn't too far down the line where kids would be led toward temptation. Everything was just layered in beautifully. And then we, that was the script I signed on to do. Mm -hmm. And then we landed in, in Australia. And before they even let us go to our house, we had to go to the production office and they handed us the new script and it had a lot of rewrites a lot of rewrites. And so that night I went through it and they had changed it to what I felt was a rated G script and not a PG 13. And it took me, it took me a few days to wrap my, you know, I signed a contract. So I guess technically I could have said, Hey, this isn't the movie I signed on for, but that would have been a cheap move. And I would have felt dirty if I did that. So I had to recommit and find myself a way to sort of look at this in, a, in under a new lamp, so to speak, take away my wish fulfillment because I grew up on Scooby. So I wanted all the jokes that, that James had layered in there because it was a reward for believing all the theories all these years, right? It would mm -hmm. be very empowering as an audience member to, to, to be rewarded like that. But Warner Brothers felt differently. Um, and so they, they made those changes and it was, a challenge but once you recommit you recommit and you go off and and do it and then as awkward as a situation as it was once and it wasn't until years later once the kids that that movie was made for grew up and i started meeting them and they would come up and tell me how much that movie meant to them and how they watched it three thousand times and made their poor parents watch it three thousand times too <laughs> all of a sudden I had this new found appreciation for it because I was able to look at it through other people's eyes, which as an artist is a dangerous thing to do. You know, Prince, David Bowie, a lot of people have said words to the effect of once you allow criticism that isn't from your peers to change the way you look or view at your own art, you're no longer making art for yourself. And so I always kind of held that philosophy true, you know, and I think most Omega personalities do think like that. It's not so much the, the insult or the compliment that we think about when we hear it. We just think about the motive behind the compliment or the insult. Like what did his girlfriend drag him to all my movies? Like, why does he hate me? <laughs> or if it's somebody who's really nice, I'm like, they got a script they want me to read for sure. And then at the end of the conversation, like, Hey, I wrote a script and in my brain. It's like, damn it, Freddie, run away, run away. <laughs> So, so yeah, man, it, it was rare that my mind can be changed, but I don't know, probably about like 
10, 12 years ago was when I was like, oh man, I'm glad that all these people, that it meant that much to them. And now I can like have a, a fond memory of, of the movie instead of the awkward ones that existed. And I'm not comfortable saying all the things they did because some of those people have kids and it wouldn't be fair for me to say so-and-so is a big jerk and da 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 like because <laughs> their kids don't need to hear that kind of heat. It was just a, a tricky experience that I I said artists need to have regrets that I th- that should be one that I, I feel like I should be able to have, you know, because it literally changed the way uh, once again that I was going to like deal with people. I was like, all right, I got to protect this. I have to protect that more. I was too nice on this. You know, it's all a learning process. We were all in our 20s still trying to figure out how to navigate our way through this crazy business. Yeah, I, I've i heard of, you know, the the some of the, the, the script changes. It, it feels like even in the sort of more watered down uh, version, if you will, that Velma, it's still pretty apparent that she's a lesbian. Yeah. Was that more overt in the original script or? Much more overt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Much more overt. And in a James Gunn, it's silly, gross, immature, but sophisticated sort of way. Like that's the best way to describe him. It's very like, he's just very like a kid who grew up in malls in the nineties. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's, that's where his brain I feel like exists, you know, same with like a Kevin Smith. Like they're just like mall kids that have seen so much life. They can really just write almost anything because they've actually seen somebody say it before. (laughs) <laughs> that's amazing um and have you have you shown uh you, you mentioned your your daughter wanting to act but have you shown <clears throat> your kids your whole body of work or no not not the whole body not not everything is is appropriate for them but they've certainly right. i think they've both seen scooby-doo at someone else's house like a sleepover somewhere mm-hmm. um my daughter and son have seen she's all that excuse me they both saw christmas with you they've seen a couple scenes from down to you here and there like it, it'll randomly be on tv and charlotte will be like dad dad this is your movie and i've never i haven't seen that one so i've seen like a couple scenes now over the years because i'll be cooking dinner and she'll put it on and watch for a little while and then she'll get bored and put on <laughs> teen titans go or something else um but yeah they haven't seen they haven't seen everything but they they've seen they've seen the greatest hits so to speak yeah no that that's that's awesome and yeah i love she's all that it it comes from a very specific i guess feel and 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 genre and amalgamation of of sort of the the teen movies before it like it's got the those, those kind of films have like the recklessness of animal house in the 70s and not, not that reckless, but at right. least they, they let us have a little bit. They didn't let us right. go rated R. I wish they would have. Totally. Yeah. And and almost like the the angst of a John Hughes movie of the 80s. And yeah. the almost stoner aloofness of like a Kevin Smith or a Link Later movie in the 90s. <laughs> um, I, that's how it feels to me. And then so many of those those movies um <clears throat> 
you know, your Scooby-Doo co-star Seth Green's Can't Hardly Wait. It just feels yeah. like it was at this intersection of like one of hip hop's golden ages and like this very <laughs> particular... Definitely, especially with Can't Hardly Wait. I actually got offered <laughs> that movie. Really? Uh, yeah, I, but I was making another one, so I couldn't do it. But I remember reading the script and I remember going, oh, and they were telling me who was there. I was like, oh, Seth's in it. it, it so I've, I've known Seth a very long time. He and I were in the very first movie I ever booked was called to Jillian on her 37th birthday. I had like two or three scenes. It was with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Claire Danes and he played my buddy and he was so nice. Like I was eating lunch by myself and he just came up and was like, Hey man, can I have lunch with you? And I was like, yeah, yeah. I took my headset off. I had a walk man back then. And he's like, what are you listening to? And, or it was a disc man. I said, uh, Elvis, Elvis Presley. And he was, or, or yeah, it was Elvis. It was Elvis Presley. And he was like, oh, cool. I like Elvis too. I don't know if he did. I don't know if he was just being nice, but he was so cool to me. And, and we've been buds ever since. We still play like board games together and him and his wife, Claire, come over. We'll have, a, we'll have a meal and play some games and stuff. He's, he's one of the nicest, nicest dudes in the business, man. Nicest dudes. And he's been in the game since he was like four years old. Wow. I didn't know it was that young. Um, oh, yeah. He was doing commercials, Burger King commercials back with my wife. They did a Burger King commercial when they were like seven <laughs> and eight years old together, man. That's awesome. And I have to uh, look that one up. Yeah, and it's easy to find. Of course, that led to, you know, the your long-term presence in Ro Robot Chicken, right? <laughs> that's right that's right i'll never i'll never leave the chicken never yeah any anytime they need some dumb voices i always say yes hell yeah yeah and i think looking back when you see your films like i i have very obviously specific way of interpreting those 90s uh sort of teen movies but when you look back and and not just those that era but all of your films like is is it easy to watch as an audience member or uh, well i don't i don't watch i don't watch my movies okay so from that that side of it i i can't i can't really answer that question but you said something earlier as far as like it had some of that john hughes energy mm -hmm. all the writers from like down to you and, and she's all that like those men were inspired by John Hughes. He wrote directly to them for them. It, yeah. it was a love affair that, that young men had with, with, with John Hughes. It, it really was. It, it, you, you got to understand like movies are so different now. John Hughes wrote specifically to a generation. And yeah. it was for them. It was for them. And that's why his movies hold up because he didn't write for everyone. He didn't try to say, well, let's make a movie that everyone on planet earth will want to love. Who, who is arrogant enough to think that they can write something that will be universally loved? Like think about the ego that has to be attached to that human being or the, <laughs> or the, the collective that makes that kind of a decision. Like, that is impossible. That is impossible. There is no piece of art that is universally loved. It can be universally respected, but there is no way you can't find one. Well, what about a Picasso? I'm not that big into Picasso. I prefer Modigliani myself, not Modigliani, like they say out here in America. Right. Like, not how you pronounce it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a ye, G L I, ye. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, 
I was lucky enough to be a part of a generation that was the last generation before all the studios were publicly traded companies. Mm -hmm. And so filmmakers were still allowed to make films. They weren't forced to make movies. And it's I'm not dumping on anything or anyone, but films were designed to appeal to a specific group. Yeah. And if you look at films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, from Cassavetes to 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 John Hughes to whoever the to Kevin Williamson in, in the 90s and everyone in between. If you look at a movie like Body Heat, every single actor there is designed to appeal to one type of personality. And that's why the movie's so iconic and still holds up today, because it's not just open arms. In fact, it turns its back on you more than once and makes you earn your way back into the story. So a lot of young people may say, well, that's not the kind of movie I want to watch. Cool. Yeah, I, I get it. Because now in the first act, you get everything so that the second and third act are the big chase and then the big the big win at the end or the or the loss at the end, depending on on how long the stories go. But those movies are awesome, too. My kids love them, but they lack a little bit of the soul that the 70s, 80s and even 90s did early 90s. It was everybody sold out in the 90s as far as the studios go. So it didn't last that long. But we were lucky enough to be that last group where they didn't have to have a a, a board of directors vote on whether a movie was going to get made or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think that's probably a lot of what I, I meant, you know, in, in terms of like the the independent vision of i feel that it's interesting that you said that that that's like the last sort of era before they they sort of sold out yeah it's too bad universal did it first with seagrams and then i think sony bought columbia and then time warner bought warner brothers kind of all at the same time and it was wow. just sort of like okay here we go it's not going to be better or worse it's just going to be different <laughs> yeah. And that's a great mindset to have for everything, you know, don't anticipate, keep, keep your expectations level. And you can set super high expectations, but they have to be self-imposed, Okay. self-imposed. Like don't, yeah. you can't worry about what the business says. You can't allow the, a business or, or, or a man or a woman to assign value to you. You have to earn that, build that up, and then present it. And when you present it, it'll be recognized as long as you put in the work. And if it isn't recognized, that person's going to be working for you one day. <laughs> so just make sure, make sure you grind it out, man. It's not the easy way. Is not always the best way in everything. Yeah, that's such a great point. So true. And uh, well, Freddie, thank you so much for for taking the time this morning i mean uh, you know it was wonderful speaking with you and you have such generous answers and oh uh, thank you man it was nice I speaking mean, with you too and i love the poster behind you man oh thank you yeah speaking of of having a specific vision for like a specific type of audience you know tim burton is one of the is that one of the european posters yeah this is the italian poster oh there oh there it is now i can see Monty. <laughs> yeah that's great that's Monty great Porter, yeah. <laughs> all right man well thank you very much for the time and i appreciate you yeah you too freddie take care all right take care of yourself and that's a wrap on freddie prince jr i hope you enjoyed the episode thanks for tuning in 
and I'll see you next time on Shattering Superstructure. This is Alex signing out. Thank you.